Amy, on this podcast, we try to always offer useful takeaways. And if you learn nothing else from us, learn this useful parenting lesson by Pampers Cruisers 360. Pampers Cruisers 360 are the ultimate parent hack, the best diaper to use as soon as your baby starts standing or walking. Instead of ordinary diaper tabs, they have a unique 360-degree stretchy waistband that moves with your wild child. Pampers Cruisers 360 makes it so easy to change your baby. Who probably doesn't stop moving just because they need a diaper changed? Just slide on to apply and away they go. And fear not, parents. Pampers Cruisers 360 offers an up to 100% leak-free fit, and they just got even better with a new blowout barrier. Need we say more? For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupons, savings, and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fresh Take from What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. This is Margaret. And this is Amy. And today we're talking to Melinda Wenner Moyer. She's an award winning contributing editor at Scientific American and a regular contributor to the New York Times, plus a former parenting columnist for Slate. Melinda's first book, released earlier this year, is How to Raise Kids Who Aren't. A deeply researched, evidence-based primer that provides a fresh perspective on parenting from toddlerhood through the teenage years. Welcome, Melinda. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, I want to know, Melinda, first, what inspired you to take the leap from science journalism to writing a parenting book? Yes. So, well, first of all, just having kids, I started having a gazillion questions that I had no idea how to answer, and Google was failing me and contradicting itself. And so even when my kids were babies, I started turning to science to answer my own parenting questions because I found that it was just much more consistent and trustworthy if it came from you know researchers who were actually studying these things. But yeah, as my kids got older a few years ago, I really... The nature of the questions I had started to shift. And I, I was getting worried about the world and you know i just felt like there were lots of people who weren't being very nice to each other and there was mm-hmm. you know i saw a lot of bullying increasing in schools in the us and i started to worry about my kids and you know what are they learning from this and what are they absorbing from this and what can i do to essentially raise them to be good human beings and i started talking with other parents and i got the sense that this was like you know parents were having this kind of realization and this crisis of like gosh it feels really important that i just raise good humans and so i turned to the science and i started looking you know could science help me answer this was there research on building character and values in kids and i found a ton of research and a lot of it had not been translated for a lay audience and a lot of it was really surprising i thought it kind of went against a lot of my own parenting instincts. So that was really the moment where I thought, okay, there's enough here for a book. I think it will be helpful. I think it's important. So I'm going to do it. You make the point in the introduction that the sort of coarsening of discourse over the last several years is sort of the lesson is coming across that bullying and aggression are not only okay and something that adults do, it's that something that people in power do. And it's sort of a default way to behave, right? I'm going to go to a school board meeting and yell. And and this is, it's happening. It's trickling down. It's happening more and more. And do kids take their cues from that? Are kids actually watching that? Or are their peers more important? 
So it's really interesting. There is research on this. It's from what's called social learning theory from the 1960s. And essentially, it shows that kids, they absolutely look to people in positions of power to understand what kind of behavior is acceptable. And there was a really famous experiment called the Bobo doll experiment from back then. We've heard of a lot of experiments, but I've never heard of the Bobo doll. Yeah, we love a good study. (laughs) Tell us about it. Okay, I don't know why it's called a Bobo doll, but it was. So essentially... Researchers invited kids into a lab, and first the kids got to just watch this grown up get really angry and beat up this Bobo doll. It was just like a doll. And they watched this grown up, you know, getting really angry, beating up the Bobo doll. And then another group of kids watched the grown up being angry, but, you know, not beating up this doll, not doing anything with this doll. Actually, I'm not even sure the adult got super angry, but they just like hung out with the doll. And then in the second half of the experiment, researchers invited the kids individually into a room and got them frustrated. They said like, you know, oh, we're going to give you candy. And then and then later they were like, actually, we don't have any candy. And they just, they riled up the kids and they gave them this doll or they put them in a room where the doll was. And they found that you could see where this is going. The kids who watched the adults beating up this doll when they got frustrated, they also violently beat up this doll. I mean, they were like really, really violent with this doll. Whereas the kids who had observed the adult just kind of like playing with the doll, even when they were frustrated, they did not, you know, take out all their violence on this doll. And so from that and other studies, we know, you know, kids really do take their cues from what they're seeing around them and particularly from adults and adults that, you know, are in positions of power. I guess for me, the leap is from like, my parents behave one way, but then I see in kind of broader society, these other things, I guess I would argue that kids maybe have a natural instinct towards aggression that they're trying to figure out and work out. So what's the relationship between seeing it in your home and outside of your home? That is a really good question. And I don't know that the research really tried to tease that out. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think if you're seeing it in your home and outside your home, that's probably Mm -hmm. worse than if you're just seeing it outside the home, but you're, you know, in your home, everyone is, you know, lovey-dovey and caring and kind. So, but I do think, you know, there's still an influence, even if you're trying to teach good values at home, there is still, you know, an influence from what kids are absorbing and seeing around them. And, you know, they, even if those are conflicting, they might think, gosh, I guess in some circumstances, it's okay to be a real jerk. Of course, for sure. So for parents who are hearing this and being like, yeah, I have been wondering about that, that our kids are getting modeled some bad behavior out in the world. What do we do about that? How do we begin to approach shaping our kids' values and behavior in a positive way? Yeah, well, it's complicated. (laughs) So my book, I broke it down into actually a lot of different traits that I thought were kind of under this umbrella of like raising a good human being. And one of the first ones, though, which I thought was really crucial is like, generosity, helpfulness, compassion, like, how do we foster that as parents? And I thought that research was really interesting, and somewhat counterintuitive, because it has to do with how we respond to and handle feelings and emotions in our homes and with our kids. And a lot of parents, I think, and myself included, like we have this well-meaning instinct to kind of rescue our kids from their bad feelings. You know, when they're upset, when they're afraid, we say, oh, don't cry. You know, this isn't a big deal. Why are you so upset? You know, we're kind of communicating to them, like, don't feel this way. Mm. And when we do that, we ultimately, I mean, we're kind of undermining their emotional experience. We're telling them you shouldn't Mm. feel this way. It's wrong. And so that, you know, makes them feel like they're not being heard, you know, they're not being listened to. But also, it essentially like robs our kid of an important learning experience. So the more that we actually 
allow feelings and talk about feelings. The more we help our kids develop emotional literacy and, you know, understand their own feelings, understand what feelings look like, understand how feelings feel. And that, it turns out, is super important for the development of generous and compassionate behavior. So if you think about like a friend who's upset and you want to help that friend, you want to make them feel better, you have to be able to look at that friend and understand their emotional state of mind and say, oh, based on their body language, their facial expressions, the sounds they're making, I'm going to guess that person is frustrated or sad or hurt. And so you have to be able to read that emotional language. And then you have to be able to kind of understand, well, what does that mean? You know, how does that feel? What do I want when I feel that way? And then, you know, be able to offer that friend the help or compassion that they need in that moment. And that requires a skill called theory of mind, which is essentially Mm -hmm. the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes. And Research suggests that talking about feelings, allowing your kids to have feelings are really important foundations for the development of theory of mind. And so it doesn't, you know, first, it's like, well, why would feelings and talking about them have anything to do with, you know, raising a compassionate, generous kid, but it's very much, you know, linked, and it's very foundational. So One of the big things in that chapter I talk about is, yeah, let your kids be upset, validate, acknowledge their feelings, and just talk about feelings a lot. Like talk about it when you're reading books, you know, pause and say, what do you think the bunny's feeling right now? And talk about your own feelings. You know, if you had a difficult day, if you're sad for some reason, you know, you don't want to burden your kids with your problems, but you can also, you can talk about, you know, why you feel a certain way and what it feels like. And that can be really, really powerful to develop that theory of mind and make kids more compassionate. There was an example in the book that I actually really liked about a researcher who went into a classroom, sat in a circle of kids. I forget how old they were, but pretty young. And was like, you know, I'm new at this school and I don't have any friends and nobody likes me. And one of the girls in the circle, you know, play acted, approached him and said, I'll be your friend. And he said, really? And he sat up straight and then he stopped the exercise and said to the kids, how do I feel now? And they're like, you feel happy. How can you tell? Because you sat up straighter. And it was a really eye opening to me that these are things that could and should be taught to kids. And it made those kids, kids become kinder once they start to understand other people's emotional states. But it's not default. We're not just born understanding that? No, we're not. I know it's surprising, right? I remember reading, I think it was Katie Hurley's book, No More Mean Girls. And it had Mm. a statistic in there that was like, even when girls are in their tween and teen years, they sometimes can't name more than like two or three emotions. I mean, kids do end up sometimes not having much emotional literacy. And that can be really, you know, hampering on their ability to sort of function in social situations and be kind to each other and, you know, really think about how your choices are affecting other people. I've struggled, I find, to allow this emotionality to be kind of age appropriate. I had a kid who went through a very, very difficult tragedy at school. And, you know, her instincts were sort of like, I'm going to bring in a lollipop for that person. And I sort of had a little bit of the instinct of like, "Uh, a lollipop is really not going to help in this situation. (laughs) But sort of allowing her to process it at the seven-year-old level that she was at, I was surprised how challenging I found that. Like, I wanted to give it this big perspective and I wanted to kind of make it okay. It was obviously very painful for me personally and then very painful to think of my small child confronting this really dark thing. And it's just interesting to me how much our own way of dealing with emotions. And Amy and I often say we're both Irish Catholic girls. Like we weren't big on like, (laughs) let's all feel our emotions together and process stuff. And that does get in my way with my kids sometimes. 
Yeah, me too. We were not a family that talked a lot about feelings. I mean, there was a lot of yelling, though. <laughs> I remember growing up. <laughs> That's expressing feelings, but yes. That's expressing it. Yes. Yes, absolutely. But there wasn't a lot of sort of let's talk about this and let's share our feelings. And so I struggle with it, too. I mean, my default is to sort of stay quiet about how I'm feeling and just sort of deal with it. And I have to push myself to sometimes, you know, get over that barrier and that hurdle and like talk to my kids about my own feelings and, you know, ask them about their feelings and really try to bridge those gaps. It's hard. It's not something that I am super comfortable with. Yeah. And I've said before, the counselors, we had counselors come and and help us deal with this thing with the kids. And one of the things I kept emphasizing is like, this is a horrible situation, but there is a gift in it of starting to allow yourself to have really emotional conversations with your kids. And this kind of forces those kind of conversations. But you should be having these kind of conversations about the smaller stuff, too, about the less you know, headline things that happen, these kind of everyday conversations around emotions. Absolutely. Yeah. These should be like ongoing conversations, not sort of one-offs every so often where we feel like we have to impart some, you know, wisdom or something to our kids. These should just be like part of the natural fabric of our daily lives. The important thing to remember, I think I actually circled this sentence in the book because I liked it so much that emotional literacy doesn't mean your kid is calm all the time or happy all the time. That's not the job, right? And I think it can scare us when our kids have big emotions and we think it would scare our kids to think that we ever have big emotions. But I guess true sort of emotional literacy, right, is about feeling all the things and sort of integrating them. Yeah, I I think so. It's a good way of putting it. Yeah. We're talking to Melinda Wendermoyer, and we will be right back. Margaret, exciting news. I am about to have a new baby nephew. And believe it or not, this will be my 13th nephew. Amy, you're ready to give up your amateur status. You're a pro (laughs) aunt at this point. Our family has seen a lot of babies. And as soon as they start standing or walking, I send them all a whole lot of Pampers Cruisers 360. Pampers Cruisers 360 don't have ordinary diaper tabs. Instead, they have a unique 360 degree stretchy waistband that moves with your newly mobile little one. Pampers Cruisers 360 offer a gap-free fit that is up to 100% leak-proof, crucial once your baby is quite literally up and at them. And that gap-free fit helps prevent your baby from taking off their diaper, a habit you do not want them to get into. You can say that again. And Pampers Cruisers 360 just got even better with a new blowout barrier. Need we even elaborate on the need for that, friends? For trusted protection trust pampers the number one pediatrician recommended brand download the pampers club app today and earn pampers cash then redeem your pampers cash for exclusive pampers coupon savings and rewards only redeemable via pampers club pampers cash has no cash value margaret when you've got kids as just about everybody listening to this right now does you're probably looking at what they eat and seriously wondering how they could possibly be getting all of the vitamins and minerals they need to grow big and strong that's why Hyo was created the pediatrician approved superpowered chewable vitamin for kids Hyo fills the most common gaps in modern children's diets to provide the full body nourishment our kids need and yes Even your picky eaters will approve. I know mine does. Formulated with the help of nutritional experts, Haya is pressed with a blend of 12 organic fruits and vegetables. Then it's supercharged with 15 essential vitamins and minerals to help support our kids' growing brains and bodies. 
And Haya vitamins are sent straight to your door, which means you set it and forget it and give yourself one less thing to worry about. We've worked out a special deal with Haya for their best-selling children's vitamin. Receive 50% off your first order. To claim this deal, you must go to HayaHealth.com slash fresh. This deal is not available on their regular website. Go to H-I-Y-A-H-E-A-L-T-H-HayaHealth.com slash fresh to get your kids the full body nourishment they need to grow into healthy adults. We're back and let's revisit. You were talking about these character traits. We were just sort of touching on resilience as a topic with this idea of emotional, you know, literacy doesn't necessarily mean your kid is calm. I feel like resilience, there was a period a couple of years ago where I feel like all we talked about was grit. Your kids have to have grit. We don't want our kids to face hard things, but we sort of understand that some part of ourselves is forged in this crucible of hard things happening. So we don't want to seek those things out, but we want our kids to be resilient. So how does that work? Yeah, this is what's so hard about building resiliency is that it is our job to protect our kids. It's our job to keep them safe. And so sometimes we think that means, you know, protecting our kids from hard things, protecting our kids from disappointment, from frustration, from challenges, from failures, because those don't feel good. And the problem is, though, is that, you know, life is hard. Life is full of difficult things and disappointment and challenges. And we want to give our kids the skills to manage them because they're going to encounter them. And, you know, if we're protecting them from it all throughout childhood, then suddenly they're going to have to face them and they're not going to have had the practice. They're not going to have had the tools and, you know, it's going to be terrifying and horrible. (laughs) So, so sometimes I think, you know, instead of jumping in and rescuing our kids, you know, when they're struggling with their homework or with, you know, some new skill, instead of doing it for them, we should just let them be and let them experience that disappointment. We can be encouraging, you know, we can provide some scaffolding and support, but we need to sort of normalize those experiences because they are part of life and we want to get our kids comfortable with them. And there's also, I mean, there's research too suggesting that kids really don't like it when we rescue too much. When um, researchers asked kids, you know, how do you feel when your parents help you with your homework? Kids don't say, oh, it's great. You know, I get my homework done faster. <laughs> I think we all learned that lesson during trying to Zoom school our children during oh, the pandemic. Yeah. It, there was a reason it didn't go great. Right, right. Yeah. So they say like, well, when my parents jump in and do it for me, it's like, I get the sense that they think I'm incompetent, and I can't do it. So not only does it not let kids have the practice, it also affects their self esteem, their feelings of self efficacy, because they get the sense that wow, like, my mom and dad don't think I can do this. They don't trust that I can figure this out. And that deals a blow to their self esteem. And how does that circle back to self-esteem and self-efficacy. I understand that those are things I want my kids to have, but how does not having those things make them more likely to grow up to be jerks? (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it's funny because, yeah, when I was writing this book, for some reason, self-esteem felt really important. Like, you know, having a kid who feels good about themselves and good in themselves felt important for just like overall goodness of being like a happy and good human being. But when I did dig into the research on self-esteem, I did find that, you know, kids with lower self-esteem can have problems with, you know, aggression and friendship. And, you know, kids with lower self-esteem are more likely to get into trouble, to end up using illicit substances, to end up in prison. I'm a big pusher back 
on the self-esteem box that parents can open for their kids? Yes. Yeah, I think we put too much weight on it. And I do talk about that in the book, that there's this idea that, you know, if if we can build healthy self-esteem in our kids, then everything will go well. And (laughs) life's a cakewalk. Yeah. So I don't mean to overvalue it. But at the same time, you know, it is important. And it's something that just... If our kids have healthy self-esteem, they're going to be happier, better people overall, you know, because they just feel comfortable in themselves. They're not always comparing themselves to others. And, you know, there's all sorts of things that make life easier for kids when they have healthy self-esteem. And it strikes me that so many of these things are connected and overlapped. And we were talking recently about the sandwich generation and taking care of our parents while taking care of our kids. And a lot of people... The reaction is, I'm a bad parent because I'm taking time away from my kids to care for my parent, or they're seeing me so stressed out and spread so thin because I'm in this very difficult situation. And something that we've been feeding back to and other people in our Facebook group is like, this is real life. Your kids are actually, this is an amazing lesson for your kids, which is when people we love are in need, we do put our own needs on the back burner and we offer this kind of help and we offer ourselves and obviously it could go too far. We don't want to see our kids saying like, oh, no matter what it takes, we flatten ourselves for other people. But I think the interconnected thing of compassion and self-esteem and being honest and being generous to people, they're all feeding each other. Absolutely. It's all interrelated. That was a fascinating thing about reporting this book is I felt like I was researching very distinct areas. How do we not raise racists? And how do we not raise sexists? And also like compassion and self-esteem and all these things that I thought were like completely, you know, independent realms. And then I found all these ways that they all cross over (laughs) and and all of these kind of common themes among all of this. So that was super fascinating. Yeah. Have we hit on all of the character traits that will help our kids not grow to be jerks? Have we missed any? I had to stop somewhere, but I picked out the however many eight, seven that I thought were, you know, really crucial. So yeah, we already covered compassion and generosity and helpfulness, which I kind of put in the same umbrella. And honesty was another one that we haven't really talked about. But yeah, having healthy self-esteem, anti-racism, anti-sexism, and bullying was another. I mean, that's not really a trait, but I felt like I needed a chapter on bullying if I'm writing a book about not raising jerks. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about bullying. Why are kids driven to do that? Is it just our sort of like... Is it our monkey mind that makes us try to... (laughs) Our horrible human nature. Hold dominion over others? Yeah. What is it? I was pretty surprised by this research as well. What I found is I feel like we have some misconceptions about why kids bully and about who bullies are. So, you know... I always thought of bullies as like kids who, you know, they know exactly what they're doing. They're just cruel, nasty kids and they're trying to hurt other kids. And certainly there are bullies like that. I remember one growing up who I feel like fit into that category. (laughs) I'd like to name that person now. Go for it. We'll just make this a revenge podcast. Cancel that person. I know, right? Actually, I had a very common name. His name was Michael, but I'm not going to say his last name. But also I'm married to someone named Michael and it was not my husband who was the bully, I promise. I'm glad you didn't marry your bully. (laughs) be really messed up. I married my bully. That's a lifetime movie. Yeah. <laughs> it totally is. <laughs> yeah. So we have this idea that bullies are this one way and they're just terrible people. But what the research actually suggests, and when I talked with bullying experts, they said, you know, there's actually a pretty big proportion of kids who engage in bullying who lack this theory of mind skill that I mentioned before. So again, all these things intermingling, right? Ah. Um, who 
have trouble putting themselves in other people's shoes and they really don't get the impact of what they're doing. So their intention doesn't line up with their impact. They think they're being kind of funny or they think they're, you know, teasing, but in like an okay way. And that, you know, the other person isn't getting as hurt as they actually are. The talking about feelings, having conversations about how your choices as a kid or as an adult affect other people. Those kinds of conversations can be really helpful to build the theory of mind and help some of those kids who just might not get that what they're doing is as hurtful as it is. And the other thing that was interesting, too, is that, you know, we think sometimes of bullying as like all or nothing black and white phenomenon, like a kid is either a bully or they're not a bully. Right. Mm, We've talked about this on the podcast. Okay. Yeah. Very important. Yeah. There's a spectrum. And there are kids who are acting as bullies one day, and then the next day they're being bullied. And there are kids who, you know, occasionally will engage in bullying, but not always. And then there's the kids on the sidelines who aren't the instigators, but maybe they're supporting the bully. I mean, there's just all different ways that bullying can manifest and that kids can be involved. Even our kids who we think of as, you know, empathetic kids and good kids, we do need to have conversations about bullying. And we do need to always place their behaviors into this bigger context, like they're part of a bigger whole and everything they do can potentially have an effect on others and they need to be keeping that in mind. I have a kid who has some developmental delays and one of a late thing to develop for a lot of kids with developmental delays is theory of mind. Kids who struggle with theory of mind get in more trouble, get more ostracized, Mm -hmm. get more bullied. And then suddenly I see them labeled later on as the bad kid, the bully. I've seen this kid since they were in kindergarten and I see what happened here. They were late to develop theory of mind. Their behavior was quote unquote bad. But as they were allowed to become the bad kid in school, their behaviors got worse. I'm not talking about my own kid for the record, but like separating out the difference between good kids and bad kids and And kids who are struggling with some of these character traits for different reasons is really interesting and important, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And you can imagine, too, if those kids are ostracized by their peers, but the teachers treat them not as kindly as other kids, then, of course, that's going to just be so hurtful and so hard. And you can imagine that, yeah, they're going to have so many other issues. It's just it's sad (laughs) how it can sort of feed itself. But it is also like in the dialogue, reframing it a little bit. What are these lack? or lagging characteristics versus letting this story come in of bullies are bad and good kids are good kids. Because when you start breaking that down, the factors that play into that in terms of kids who are from homes where this is being emphasized or kids who have, you know, lots of support tend to rise into the good kid category. Are there studies about this that it would be a self-fulfilling prophecy that a kid who is labeled a troublemaker or a bad kid And it occurs to me, as you were saying, like self-esteem is important. If your kid isn't going to be a jerk, he or she has to have good self-esteem. If they don't have good self-esteem because they're being labeled the bad kid and the troublemaker in school, that gives them bad self-esteem, which makes them more likely to act out. It seems like it would just compound itself. Yes, there is research on that. Absolutely. It's a huge problem. It seems to me also, just to pivot to something else you talk about in the book, that it's something we approach with the best of intentions. There's a bully in the classroom. We have to talk to this kid and tell the bully to stop bullying and we might approach it with the best of intentions in the most counterproductive of ways as an adult. And you say in the book that there are actually many times that our parenting instincts and strategies are counterproductive. Can we talk a little bit about why that is and how that plays out? There were so many times researching this book that I realized that, wow, the science here is 
really the opposite of what my instincts tell me to do. (laughs) (laughs) We find that so often on the podcast. Yeah, I mean, and it's hard to change too when these are your instincts and and you also have the habit of having done it this way for so long. It's really hard to break those. And I think there are so many ways that that plays out. I certainly, you know, I had that with, you know, the instinct to rescue my kids and over rescue them and realizing, wow, I've got to like let them be disappointed and let them be frustrated. You know, I used to do things to like help my kids not have tantrums. You know, when I knew like my kid was about to throw an epic tantrum because I'd given them like the blue cup instead of the red cup. And I would be like, (laughs) how dare you? Oh, I'll just switch it and and do exactly what he says so I can avoid the tantrum. And actually, the much more constructive thing is to like let, you know, to say, no, this cup is fine and let the kid have the tantrum and then get through the tantrum and realize, oh, the world didn't just end because I didn't get the red cup. You know, it's and that's okay. You know, and you're actually teaching your kids like Mm. to handle disappointment and to be more resilient when you kind of let them be upset. Anyway, that was a kind of aside. Uh, (laughs) I don't know if I'm answering your question. (laughs) Well, there's one example in particular in the book that I thought was really, we've talked about it on the podcast about colorblind child raising. Like my kids don't see race. In my family, we don't see color. That that is a very well-meaning and counterproductive approach. Can you talk a little bit about the research around that? Yes, absolutely. Yep. This was one where when I first saw this research, it was very eye-opening. Yeah. So white parents in particular often have this very well-meaning idea that if we don't talk to our kids about race or skin color, then our kids just won't notice it. They won't make a big deal out of it and they won't you know, become racist. And I think that's a completely understandable assumption. However, <laughs> the research suggests that is really not the most constructive thing to do. And that's for a couple of reasons. One is we know from research that kids do see skin color. They do notice race from the time they're three months old, actually. So they're seeing these differences. And they're also... Kids are like little detectives. They are looking around the world and trying to understand what are the things that really matter? What are the social categories that matter? You know, and we're social creatures. So they're just looking around trying to figure out how the world works, essentially. And one of the things they see pretty early on is that race is really important for kind of how successful you become in life. You know, they look around and they might say, okay, well, it doesn't really seem to matter what hair color you have or what eye color you have or how tall you have. There's people doing all kinds of things, you know, who are different heights and different hair colors, different eye colors. But wow, you know, it seems that white people have a lot more power in this world, you know? And there's only been one president who is not white. And there's, of course, also all been men, which is another thing. They notice a gender hierarchy as well. And they might notice that in their school, you know, there are more white kids in the gifted programs or there are more white kids who live in big houses. They see all these ways that race seems to be really, really important in our society. And then they try to figure out why. And if we aren't there and or their teachers aren't there to explain that the reason this racial hierarchy exists is because of racism and it's been around for a very long time and it's still a big problem, then kids are going to try to figure out Mm. the answer themselves. And the simplest answer, if you're looking at a world like ours, is, well, it must be that white people are just better and smarter and more powerful somehow innately. And so kids will come to that conclusion unless we are there to talk to them about it and explain, you know, the reality of it and the that racism is actually incredibly important for creating this hierarchy. So 
we actually need to go out of our way to talk about race and to talk about racism and to invite conversations about race, which is really hard if you're white, because a lot of us were raised in families where race was a taboo subject. And, you know, we thought that that was the best thing. So it's very, very hard to like, if your kid is in the grocery store and like yells out, look at that lady with really dark skin, you know, your instinct is like, oh my God, I'm mortified. I want to tell my kid to be quiet, like stop it. Don't ever say that. That's not okay. You know, but when we do that, we're telling kids like, don't ever talk about race with me. It's not a conversation you can have with me. And also we're kind of communicating to them like, wow, this must be really important if it makes mom so upset. And So that's the opposite of what we want to do. We want to like normalize it and and say, yeah, you know what? Her skin is darker than ours and skin comes in all different colors. And that's actually really cool. And it has to do with a chemical called melanin. So we kind of, that's one area where, uh, yeah, we really have to push against our instincts. We're talking to Melinda Wenner-Moyer. Her book is How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Jerks. And we'll be right back. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Ko, and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, You'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. So, Melinda, let's talk about social media. I have teenagers and I'm wondering, I can see that it's taught my teenagers a certain coarseness of discourse. What do you do? I mean, my kid's a high schooler. Too late. They're consuming social media. If you're a parent of a younger kid, are you just sort of holding the door? Do you walk through this with them? What do you suggest? Yeah, Social media is so tough. We're only giving you the easy questions. How do you solve character, social media, you know, and racism? And racism. (laughs) (laughs) Solve all of the problems. Big episode for you. You got (laughs) to really solve all these things. A lot of the headlines and claims we see about social media and screen time, I think a lot of them are extremely alarmist. I do think there are reasons to be concerned about social media. I absolutely do. But I think we also have to take some of these headlines and some of these claims with a grain of salt, because when you look at the 
research, it's not all entirely black and white. Some teens actually use social media to connect with friends and they find that it makes them feel better about themselves and it helps to develop their friendships. On the other hand, you know, there are the kids who use it passively, who are just scrolling through and seeing, you know, their friends at parties that they weren't invited to. And that passive use can absolutely be a problem. And of course, there's the cyber bullying and the, just the way in which the discourse can be very polarized on social media too. So I first just want to say like the research is not as clear cut as some of the claims are. And there are good things that kids can get out of screens and screen time and social media and, and things. So when I tried to figure out from the research was what are some of the big overarching things that we can glean from the research that are helpful for parents who are trying to figure out how to manage screens and social media. And there was really interesting research suggesting that if you compare what happens to the kids of parents who just they're very strict, they limit, they don't let their kids have access at all to screens and internet and social media. When you follow those kids, those kids over, you know, eventually they're going to get their hands on the internet and social media. And the problem is they haven't had a chance to learn the skills. They don't understand, you know, how to navigate well on social media and on the internet. And so those kids sometimes actually get into the most trouble because when they do eventually end up online, they're more likely to access pornography. There's, they're more likely to engage in cyberbullying. They just, they haven't been taught how to do it, you know? And the kids who actually do the best are kids whose parents kind of act as mentors when it comes to screens and games and social media. Because when you're engaging with your kids about what's going on on a screen, you're opening up conversations, you're sharing your values, you're sharing your concerns, and you're sharing your expectations. Here's how you should act when you're online. And here's something important you need to know about privacy. You're having the opportunity to have conversations that are helping your children build these skills. When you have some free time, play a game with your kids and have conversations and try to help them because ultimately, that's our job, right? Giving them those tools so that they can manage them in the best possible way. What I'm finding, my kids are middle school aged. They kind of have to do this wrong sometimes to learn it. And that's really hard. Like they kind of have to step outside the lines or be unkind to someone to feel that feeling of like, oh, I don't like the way it makes me feel when I made another person cry. And I feel like as toddlers, it was easier to sort of watch them play and like, oh, you hit that kid in the face with a truck. Now he's crying. But I find myself with my middle schoolers. There was an incident that concert recently where people were killed has been a big conversation in middle school. And my kids were sort of like, you know, some people are making jokes about that happening. And I'm like, yeah, because that's a lot of times what people do. Why? Because they feel scared about it. It's tragic and upsetting. And their reaction is to try to make jokes about it to make it okay. And I feel like I struggle with that, letting the kids be in it, but wanting them to kind of hit all these character traits perfectly on the first at bat. And that's difficult. And it's super difficult on social media. You're spot on, though, that they have to make mistakes to learn. I mean, these are complex situations. And these are not innate, you know, we don't know how to deal with this innately. So we have to fumble, you know, our way through before we can kind of figure out what are the customs, what's expected, what's okay. I don't really necessarily mind my kid doing something stupid at school and getting in trouble. Like, okay, that's a learning experience. But it does feel sometimes like on social media, the stakes are very high because it stays around forever. You don't want to be part of the thing that gets screenshotted. And that was some huge mistake. It makes me so paranoid. Yeah, it's so hard. Are there times when kids are ever 
supposed to act like jerks. I know you talked about, I guess it was an article that a parent had written saying, if I don't teach my kid how to stand up for herself, then how will she deal with a mansplainer? So, you know, so yeah, my kid's going to be a jerk and deal with it. What do you say to people who say like, well, wait a minute, they need these skills to exist in this school board yelling <laughs> society? This is a question I get a lot that if we're teaching our kids to be kind and compassionate, aren't we actually putting them at a disadvantage? Isn't this going to mean that they're going to get walked over by everyone? They're not going to be successful, you know, it's going to hamper them. And well, the first thing I say is there's research on this and it actually suggests that the kids who are kinder and more compassionate end up being more successful. (laughs) They actually end up like earning more money than kids who are less kind. And there was one really fascinating study that tracked kids from age kindergarten. It was boys in particular. I don't know why. Boys from kindergarten to age 25 And they watched the boys in the kindergarten classrooms and they kept track of, you know, how kind and helpful they were and, you know, how did they treat their friends and their teachers. And they found that the boys who were kinder, more helpful, more compassionate in the kindergarten classroom were more successful at age 25. They were less likely to be in prison. They were making more money. They had less likely to have been fired from their job, I think, too. So... Yeah, we do actually see that kindness and success are linked. Adam Grant wrote a whole book on this. So I don't think we need to worry that like our kids are going to fail because they're kind. Um, And I also think, you know, being kind doesn't mean being a pushover. It doesn't, I mean, it can mean standing up for the things that you feel are important. It can mean actually engaging in conflict to, you know, fight injustice or to do what you think is right. I think sometimes we confuse like, niceness and kindness. I think of niceness as like a dispositional, you know, you never engage in conflict. I mean, I don't know, this is just my own belief about the word. But, you know, kindness doesn't mean always being nice. It means doing what you think is best and, you know, thinking of others and putting yourself in this sort of bigger hole of like, thinking of yourself as part of a family or community or school and doing things that help other people. So yeah, I don't buy that claim that if your kids are kind and compassionate, that they're going to be somehow at a disadvantage. However, I will say that there have been, you know, people have risen to very high positions of power who are also kind of jerks. So, you know, we do see that some successful people are jerks. That does happen, but it is not the norm. It's not the norm. And also kindness to success correlation is very complicated as well. There's a lot of factors that are playing into those kids' success yes. beyond kindness. Oh yeah. But I think we're all here to agree that like having a kid who is not a jerk is something that we are aiming for. <laughs> In the big picture. Team world. (laughs) Yes, I certainly am. We've been talking to Melinda Wenner-Moyer. Her book is called How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Melinda, tell us where we can find you and your work and what you're working on now. So I have a website that's kind of a one-stop shop, melindawennermoyer.com. I now actually have a parenting newsletter because when I finished the book, I realized I still had 800,000 more questions on how to raise good human beings. We've been doing the podcast for five years and we still have 800,000 questions. I don't know how that works. Right? It never ends. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to keep answering my questions and answering other people's questions. And so every week and sometimes twice a week, you know, I look at the science on an issue, I call up experts and I answer it for my newsletter. And you can sign up for my newsletter through my website. And I'm just sort of back to doing a lot of journalism too. I'm writing a lot for the New York Times right now and having fun and just thinking about my next book. If you have any ideas, I want to write another book. I've liked this, but I don't know what's next. (laughs) We'll put a link to the newsletter in the show notes for this episode, along with all the ways to reach Melinda. This has been a great conversation. Thanks for talking to us today, Melinda. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. 
Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.